Welcome to the Baptist Pulpit. This podcast is designed to introduce to the audience Baptist preachers, both living currently in America or across the world, and also to introduce classic speakers, men of the past. There were Baptist preachers that have inspired men like myself for years to preach the Word of God. And they also, through their preaching, highlight Baptistic principles. Welcome to the Baptist Pulpit and our featured speaker today as Pastor Harold Seitler. He is our classic preacher of the past. Pastor Harold Seitler was born in 1914, on May 15th, 1914, in the lower part of his beloved South Carolina. That is the state where he lived in his whole 81 years, and he ministered faithfully for 55 of those years. He often preached on a number of different topics, but one of them was on Christian training in a child's life. This is what he said about it. He said, among my earliest recollections is an old grandmother with God's word in her lap, reading the story of Jesus and his love. He was very profound in preaching the word of God. In 1943, he founded a daily radio ministry, The Bright Spot Hour, which is still heard uh, on many, many radio stations across America. He uh, came to Greenville in 1952 and was the pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church on Whitehorse Road there in Greenville. Pastored there for 42 years and two months until his death in September of 1995. During his years at Tabernacle, Dr. Sightley founded uh, a children's home, the Tabernacle Baptist Bible College, a Christian school, the Helen Grace Seitler Widow's Apartments, a daycare center, and two radio stations. He kept busy. He loved God's Word. He was an advocate for the King James Bible and independent Baptist fundamentalism. Pray that the message will be a blessing to you today. Here's one of the most beautiful stories. And when I say story, I don't mean an allegory, but a record, the story of the life of a man named Mephibosheth. One of the most beautiful stories I think I've ever read in all the Bible, and I've read all the Bible in my life and preached from a greater part of it. And I, I marvel at this beautiful type of Jesus as he reaches out with an arm of grace and mercy to those that need to be saved in God's grace. Now I'm going to read verse number 9, and then I'll come back later and tell you the story, and then I'll make some applications from it. I said verse 9, verse 8. If you have your Bible open to 2 Samuel 9, verse 8. And he bowed himself, that is Mephibosheth, bowed himself and said to David the king, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? What is thy servant? In my hand no price do I bring. Why would you ever look upon me with any indication of mercy and grace toward me who am a dead dog? A, a living dog is not of any value, but a dead dog is totally of no value. 
Why would you look upon me, said said Mephibosheth, said. I have no price. I have no worth. I have no talent. I have no ability. I have no wealth. I don't even have youth and strength. I have nothing to give to you. Why wouldst thou be mindful of such a dead dog as I am? Now I'll get back to that text in a moment or two. I want to speak to you on the grace of God, the story of Mephibosheth. And I recognize when I commence to think about the grace of God, I'm attempting to tell the untellable and to describe the indescribable. And I think I feel my limitation at that point. I don't think the adjectives that I may be able to command, and there are not many, but the adjectives that I could command are totally inadequate to describe the grace of God like I feel like it ought to be described. I would love someday to preach on this subject uh, in a way that I think would be acceptable and pleasing to God uh, to the uh, uh, top degree. But I've never reached that point. I don't think that I have that ability. Though my tongue would touch with a live coal from God's altar, because of the limitation of my flesh, I'm afraid I would not get it told like I'd like to tell it. To tell the grace of God is like trying to hug a mountain. You'll never get it done. To tell the grace of God is like trying to describe the beauty of a lovely sunset to a blind man who's never seen the sun sink beyond the western hills. Undoubtedly, one of the most beautiful array of glory and beauty is the sunset. I've seen sun from the windshield of my automobile as I travel directly into the west. The sun is sinking. And I drive the car, but I at the same time feed my soul through my eye gates on the beauty of that sunset. No artist could duplicate it. And he might look at it as I, but as though he would be highly gifted as a painter, no artist could ever duplicate the beauty that God drapes out on the western horizon every day. Somewhere the clouds don't obstruct. And somewhere that beautiful sunset is seen and observed by the human eye. You'd never get that told to a blind man at your side who'd never seen the brightness of the sun to begin with. To describe the glory of its setting will be an impossible task to a blind man. To tell the grace of God is like trying to describe the beauty of a rose, one of the most beautiful things I've ever looked at in my life. Uh, as a rose, you pluck it from the from the vine and lift it up to your eyes and feed your eyes upon the beauty of that rose, and then you lift it to your nostrils and enjoy the fragrance of that rose to all uh, of its degree. Uh, I don't think uh, I don't think I could describe a rose like I'd love to. It's a beautiful thing, none would deny. Or to tell the beauty of a newborn babe's face. One of our young ladies brought a newborn baby by the pulpit this morning, and I looked down into the face of that newborn babe and marvel how perfect, how perfect. Not a flaw, not that I could tell, not one flaw. A beautiful newborn babe, just a few weeks old now. How beautiful. How can you describe that to a blind man? How can you fully understand the glory of the countenance of a newborn babe, though your eyes can see good? You'd not be able to appreciate the beauty of that like it ought to be. To tell the grace of God is something like that. Uh, we stammer and we stutter and we try to hunt for an adjective to describe what we feel in our heart and we're grossly inadequate to describe the, be the beauty and the glory of the grace of God shed abroad in our heart by the blessed Spirit of God. But nonetheless, I shall attempt to do again tonight what I've felt many times 
I'm, I'm uh, totally incapable of doing. Yeah, I shall attempt the game. I was preaching at Highland Park Church in a conference over in Chattanooga uh, 20 years ago, I suppose now. And I was staying in the prophet's room. They had two rooms, a kitchen and a bedroom. And I had gone out to have my meal at the noonday hour. And I thought I locked the door. When I arrived back, I heard somebody playing the piano inside the apartment. And I wondered who had the key, wondered who that was. And I unlocked the door and I and stepped inside and then looked around uh, through the kitchen door into the bedroom and the living room area. And Dr. Weigel sat at the piano. And Dr. Weigel stood in his pulpit and sang his beloved, No one ever cared for me like Jesus in this pulpit. And I did not disturb him, so I slipped back into the kitchen and sat down and waited and waited. I don't know how long, maybe 30 minutes or maybe more. But I sat there and waited as he picked out what I supposed to be the melody of a new song. And I was right. Later I discovered. When the music stopped, I got up and walked into the bedroom and I greeted Dr. Weigel. How you doing? I said, brother. He was an old man then, about 90. He died uh, four or five years later at the age of 95. And I said, what are you doing, Dr. Weigel? And he said to me with a glee in his eyes, I'm writing a new song. And I thought to myself, had I been able to have written No One Ever Cared for Me Like Jesus, I think I would have retired and never written another one. Uh, undoubtedly one of the most beautiful melodies I've ever heard with glorious words is that song from the heart and soul of Dr. Weigel. But I, I didn't say anything uh, like that. I thought that in my mind. But I said to him, what's the title of your song that you're writing? And he answered, Oh, what glory. Well, I like that title. I never heard the song, of course. It's brand new. But he said, if I, tomorrow morning at the 10 o'clock service, I'm going to sing it for the first time in public. Oh, what glory the next day. And I promised him I'd be there, and I was there. I wanted to hear. I wanted to be in the service, but I wanted to hear that song also. At 10 o'clock, he was introduced, and Dr. Wigo sang that song that later had become quite famous, quite beloved. We love it here at Tabernacle, and it's sung from this pulpit many times, and will continue to be sung from this pulpit many other times we pray. But uh, he sang that song for the first time in public, and God blessed it and warmed the heart of the preachers and all over the church. Uh, preachers were rejoicing and praising God with lifted hands and with their hallelujahs and glories. Several of them on their feet shouting in that building as, as Dr. Weigel sang, Oh, what glory. Well, I thought to myself, here's an old man, one foot in the grave, so to speak. At that time, he was 90 years old, died five years later. And all his life, he's written many famous songs, more than 200 famous hymns and songs from the heart of Dr. Weigel. And I thought to myself, he's been attempting to tell the grace of God all his life. But like the preacher, he feels he hasn't told it like it ought to be. And though he's old, he's writing again the words and melody of a new song to describe the grace of our Heavenly Father. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Indeed, amazing grace is the grace of God shed abroad in your heart and in my heart. And I'm aware of the fact that I'm not able to tell it, yet I shall attempt to do so again tonight. Four things I say about grace, the grace of God. Number one, grace is God loving unlovely sinners as we all are. Number two, grace is God giving Jesus to die upon the cross for unlovely, ungodly sinners as we all are. Number three, grace is lifted out of sin that which cannot lift itself. And number three, and number four, grace illustrated with the story of Mephibosheth. Now my sermon is in four words. Grace is God living. Grace is God giving. Grace is God lifting. And grace is God 
uh, illustrated in the story that I've read to you in Second Samuel and will, will expound it to you uh, at this point. Four great things about the grace of God I'd like to say in the meeting tonight. Number one, grace is God-given. God loving, God loving unlovely sinners. And that's an amazing thing to me that God would love unlovely people. I might understand how God could love a good man or a good woman, a clean young person, a clean a young boy. I might understand that. But I recognize that the love of God is infinitely greater than that. You go to the dirtiest, most vile, ungodly man or woman in Greenville and report to that sinner, God loves you, and you've told him the grace. You've told him the truth. You've told him the very essence of the Bible. God so loved the world of sinners that he gave his only begotten son. Grace is God loving. And I'd like to remind you that God loved you while you were yet a sinner. He didn't wait for you to clean up. Or repent. He loved you when you were unclean. He loved you when you had not repented. He loved you when you had not believed enough to allow Jesus to die in your place instead of in Calvary. Now that's an amazing thing. I, I, can, I might understand how God could love a good man, but a bad man. That's a different thing altogether. An unclean man. That's a different altogether. A criminal. A murderer. A whoremonger. A thief. Uh, God loves those people. And, and, and sure, we've seen that. We've learned that in our own experience of the grace of God ourselves. I've dealt with a few lost people in my life. And I, I've won a few to God and baptized them into this fellowship. And they sit here tonight to hear me preach. And they were saved from the federal penitentiary, from the local jailhouse, uh, from the liquor taverns uh, and the bare joints and the dance floor. They were saved from all of that. And they are now listening to the preach. God can do that, and God does that on lovely people. And I'm happy that I can report to you that grace includes folk as they are, you see, and as all that we are. I preached over the radio, and a lady in Greensboro heard the program and heard the message, and she wrote to me, and she said, uh, I hesitate to write because I'm such a dirty creature. Uh, I'm a, a doper. I'm a drunkard. I've been married three times and divorced. I've had six children. Three of them died as infants because of social disease in my body. And I lived such a vile life until I didn't want you to handle the paper that I had to handle to write the letter to you. But I've been hearing you over the radio, and I don't want to go to hell. Is there any hope for a poor sinner like me? Now, I don't get a multitude of letters like that, but all alone I get some from people just like the one I've just referred to from Greensboro. I stopped what I was doing, and I wrote that letter, a lady back a letter. I, I'm not much of a typist, but I had to learn to type the hard way. Way back when I was a young preacher, never had a type in lesson in my life, but I had to learn to type in order to be a preacher and to write letters and answer mail. And I wrote that letter back, a, letter, a, letter, a lady back a letter on my typewriter. I stopped everything and did it right then. And I said to her, there's a bomb in Gilead. There's a sympathizing Savior. I said to her, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. I said to her, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. And uh, I give all those good invitations and promises in the letter and sent it back to her. And a few days later, I received another letter. And she said, tis done. The transaction is done. God has saved me. 
and I could hardly believe my eyes. God has saved me, she reported. And I rejoiced and said, praise God for that wonderful experience. God saved me, said that dear lady, in that tragic condition. Let me give you a climax to that story that God gave to me. And this is a miracle. God knew what he was doing. I was preaching a few weeks or months after that in Greensboro, and I had dinner with my pastor friend for whom I was preaching. And in the cafeteria, going through the line, I told him the story that I just told you. With the idea that maybe he could visit, maybe he could baptize her. I live 200 miles away, and maybe my pastor friend can baptize her. And when I got to the end of my story... I couldn't remember a name. I, at that moment, I couldn't have, I couldn't have spoken a name if my life had depended upon it. Now, I'm aware you don't have that problem, but sometimes I do. I, I just can't call that name. And right at that moment, I couldn't call that lady's name to save my life. And I had to say to my pastor friend, I'm sorry. When I get home, I'll check the files and I'll send uh, her name to you and you can visit her. And uh, we'd sat down ready to eat our meal and uh, uh, going through the cafeteria line ready to eat our meal. And before we could grace that meal, a child, about 10 years old, a little girl, walked up to me whom I'd never seen before nor since. And she handed me an envelope. And she said, does this belong to you? And on the front it said, the bites for an hour. And I said, yes, ma'am. Where did you get this letter? And I said, uh, she said to me, my mother saw you come into the cafeteria. And she thinks, she thinks you're the preacher that she hears on the radio. And she said, if you're the preacher, she wanted me to give you this letter. And I thanked the young lady. And I started to put it in my pocket as I did that just a moment ago. And I, I looked on the back. I don't know why I looked on the back of the letter. But I looked on the back of it. And there was that woman's name on the back. And I said to the pastor, here's the miracle. I told you a moment ago about the lady that got converted so wonderfully, and I couldn't recall her name, but here's her name on the back of the envelope. And I said to my pastor friend, excuse me, and I left the table and my food, and I went over to the table where the lady sat with that 10-year-old child, and she got telling me how good it was to be saved, and how wonderful she felt that her sins were all blotted out. And great big tears chased each other down her cheek and dropped off her quivering chin. And she was happy. And I got happy. And when I get happy, I sometimes laugh. I was on one side of the table laughing for joy. And she was on the other side weeping for the same reason. I can't explain that to you, but sometimes it happens that way. And we had a circuit meeting in that cafeteria because of the goodness of God in the land of the living. Let me give you another climax of that story God gave it. Several years later, I preached in this pulpit one Sunday morning, and I've done a lot of preaching in this pulpit, nearly 40 years of it. But a lady after the service walked down the aisle here and came up to me, and I stepped down on the steps here. And she said, do you know me? People say that to me, and it's such an embarrassing thing for me to be honest. I, I, I can't hardly tell a lie. That's just not right, ever to tell a lie. And yet I didn't want to tell that lady I, I couldn't call her name. But I, it seemed that I should have known her. And I now understand why, because it was her, all right. But I had to admit to her, I'm sorry, lady, please forgive me. I'll let your name slip, and that's the whole truth. And I said that to her. Then she said, you remember the lady in Greensboro? And like a flash, it all came back to me. And I said, you're the lady. She said, I'm the lady. She said, I, she said, I drove 200 miles today to tell you that it's still good. Amen. We had another shouting spell right there on the flat, on the floor. The grace is God saving people like that. Grace is God loving unlovely sinners. And I'm glad I can report that to you. There is no sinner in all of 
Springfield beyond the scope of God's grace, not the first one. And I marvel with gratitude and thank you for that reality. Then number two, grace is God not only living, but grace is God giving. The only begotten Son, His only begotten Son. Not a second gift, but a first gift. God fixed himself up in Jesus and died upon Calvary to pay my sin debt. Grace is God loving, but that great love of God prompted him to give his only begotten son upon Calvary to sufficiently pay my sin debt for time and eternity. Amen. Grace is God giving his son Jesus to die. Here it is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and gave his son to die upon the cross in your place and in my place. Christ died for me. Christ died for you. God's eternal Lamb bled and suffered and died upon Calvary for you. Had you been the only sinner in Greenville, Jesus would have died for you nonetheless. But he died for all sinners, including you and me. Grace is God giving Jesus to die. Now, I can understand why you'd give your life for some people. If, uh, if Brother Clark, for example, came down with a kid to pay to like Harry Clark, or Brother Clark, I'll guarantee in his, uh, in his uh, uh, home with his sisters and family, if one of them could get, donate a kidney, they would. If Brother Clark came down, some member of the church stepped forward and say, if my kidney will match, I'll give one of my kidneys to spare the life of Brother Clark. I can understand that. His family would do that. His loved ones would do that, I'm sure. And I could fathom that. Right. But how about the whoremonger? How about the wino? How about the prostitute? What man in the building would step forward and give your kidney to a prostitute or to a wino that isn't related to you at all and you have no cause to be uh, too greatly concerned about them? Not many of any. Well, don't eat your kidney for a person like that to keep them alive. Uh, you say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But in your soul, you say, I can't run that risk. I have my own family to think about. But if it's your loved one, you don't even have to debate it. You don't have to give it a thought. If you thought your kidney would postpone the death of a loved one, a son or a daughter, a grandson or granddaughter, it's not debatable. You'd say to the doctor, yes, sir. If my kidney will work, I'll donate one of my kidneys to keep my loved one alive. I can fathom that. I can understand that. But I don't think I'd give my kidney to a wino. I don't think I'd give my kidney to a prostitute. I don't think I'd give my kidney to a criminal headed for the electric chair. No, I don't think I'd do that. But wait a minute. How about God? God gave his only begotten son to die from the Calvary for the criminal, for the wino, for the drunk, for the outcast, for the down and out, for the rebel. Christ died for the ungodly. He's the just one, but he died for the unjust. I marvel at that. Grace is God giving Jesus to die on the cross to pay your sin debt. And then number three, grace is God lifting out of the miry clay that which could not lift itself. Not one of us could. We're lifted out by that everlasting arm of Jesus. Have you ever watched a spider weave a web? Why does a spider weave the web? As a God to wear, no. As a house in which to dwell, no. Does the spider weave that web to display his gift to make something a human hand could not duplicate? No. Why does the spider weave the web? One reason. A trap and a snare. The, the spider knows that sooner or later, Mr. Fry is coming by. And when Mr. Fry sees that web, he's going to light on it. He's going to marvel at its precision and beauty. 
And he does. And after a while, Mr. Powell will say, I'll now fly away. But he can't. He's caught. He can't imagine how he's caught, but he's caught. And he can't get loose. In desperation, he flaps his wings until they, like his legs, now also becomes enveloped with those silky cords. And he charges his legs, trying to liberate himself, and flaps his wings in utter desperation, but to no avail. He's caught. He can't liberate himself. The fly moves, the uh, spider moves across that web with the greatest of ease to devour the prey. You might have watched that drama and how the pitiful fly reached down and picked it up and turned it loose and let it fly away. And the fly might have flown away as to say, thank you, mister. You lifted me out right at the right moment. Thank you, mister. That's exactly what God did for me and you. We were caught. We were entrapped. We were enslaved in the fetters of sin and transgression. And you couldn't lift yourself by your bootstraps. You couldn't get free. But Jesus came by where you were. And when Jesus came by, he lifted you out of the miry clay. And there's no other way to get liberated except by the liberating grace of God when he lifted you out, you see. Grace is God lifted out that which cannot lift itself. Now, grace illustrated with your Bible open in your lap. Look at verse number one. And here's a beautiful story uh, attempting to tell what I've just tried to tell with a stammering tongue. David said in verse 1, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him for Jonathan's sake? A question. When David became the, the second king of Israel, believe it or not, he sought out from Dan to Bathsheba for every living descendant of Saul, and he brought them in one at a time to show the kindness of God to them for Jonathan's sake. And he thinks now his project is over. And he says to his servants, and Ziba in particular, who is a type of the Holy Spirit in the story, Ziba, is there any not yet brought in? And Ziba, the servant, in verse number 2, it says that there was left of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they called him unto David, the king said, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Behold, thy servant is he. But he said, Is any left? And Ziba is just about ready to say, your, your Majesty, you've been wonderful. And we all commend you. We'll love you because you've been so charitable and so forgiving. And you've done a tremendous job. And he had indeed done that. Every son, every grandson, every nephew, every niece of Saul he brought in. One at a time to show the kindness of God to them for Jonathan's sake, uh, who is a picture of Jesus in our story. And, uh, he, and Ziva thinks his job is finished. And he's about to say, Your Majesty, the project is finished. When God says, Ziva, there's one yet. And then God put the name of that one yet on the mind of Ziba. And I would imagine inside his mind, uh, nobody could hear him as he reasoned, but he might have said, Now, Lord, I won't bother the king about this man. I know, I know that one left. And he's no, he's of no value. He's a cripple. He's a paralytic. He can do the king no service. And I'll make a visit for the king. And I'll do something good uh, for the king. But I won't bother the king about this unworthy creature named Mephibosheth. But God said, Ziva, you tell King David that his project is over. When it isn't, you lie. You tell him the truth. And Ziva had no choice but to say, Your Majesty, yes, you've done a great job. 
and we all commend you for your charity and for your love and for your kindness toward the descendants of your bitter enemy, King Saul. But he said, there's one yet who has not been brought in. Now when David heard that, he said, who is he? And where is he? And Ziba answered uh, here in, the, in verse number 5 of 4, he said, Behold, he is in the house of Mecca, the son of Eliel, in the land of Lodibar, the land of no bread. And David said, uh, Go fetch him to me. Now look in your Bible, you find the word F-E-T-C-H. And you college students now learn that word. My grandmother used to use it quite frequently. And I said to myself, Grandmama didn't have the chance to go to high school. She doesn't know any better. But one day I read it in the Bible. I learned where Grandmama got it. And since that day, I've appreciated the word fetch. Ordinarily, none of us use that word. But if you choose to use it, you have every right in the world to use it. I want to say in passing, there's nothing wrong with this Bible. You don't need another translation. This Bible is so rich. Until we bubble up as it is. And don't you change the word of it, not even the word fetch. David said, go fetch him to me. The word means bring, go bring him to me. And I imagine Ziba said, now, your majesty, please bear with me. I don't mean to be intrusive, but bear with me. Uh, you don't understand, he might have said to David. This man is pitiful. Uh, he's all twisted up with arthritis and, and all other kind of ailments. And then he said, bear with me, your majesty, and I'll tell you how it happened. He said, years ago when the Philistines besieged the city, uh, back in the days of Saul, the nursemaid picked up this little babe, then just a baby in arms, and rushed out of the palace to find a place of security and protection against the Philistines, the same crowd that we've been fighting over in the Middle East. And uh, he, he fell on the cobble walkway, and she dropped that baby on that uh, stone walkway, and when she picked it up, his arms were broken, his legs were broken, ribs were broken, his skull was fractured, and we all thought that baby would die. There'd be no way it could survive that fall. And may I say to you, the reason we're in the predicament we're in is because of a fall. And as a result of a fall of my father Adam, I'm rich and undone and in need of grace. And so are you. There's not one of you that can change what you are. And that change can only come by a miracle we call the new birth. And David, if you don't mind, you let me pay a visit. I won't bother you with this paralytic. And David said, no, no, sir. You go fetch him to me. And so Ziva had his orders. And David hitched one of his chariots, and I would think, though I read between the lines, uh, two white horses probably, the finest they had in his stables. And after a moment, that chariot, those white horses were at the door of King David's palace. And Ziba steps on board, and the driver says, where to, sir? And Ziba says, the house of Mecca, the son of Abiel, down in Lodibar, south of the city where the poor people live. Lodibar, the land of no bread. And that chariot driver said, Sir, you're mistaken. You, you don't mean the king's chariot is going into that God-forsaken land. I'd like to say right here, the poor listen to the gospel freely. It's the wealthy that turn their noses up at old-time religion. And so the grace of God is a gospel for, 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 for the uh, south side. The grace of God is the gospel for the land of no bread, where I live, where I came from. 
I was a nobody. And still am nothing except by the grace of God. But the grace of God is for people from Lodibar. And they turned that chariot around and left the southern gate of the city down toward the land of Lodibar. People looked out their windows and said, Could this be the king's chariot in this God-forsaken land? What, what's this all about? They might have thought it's further. And on and on that chariot goes to the house of Mecca in the land of Lodibar. And after a while it stops in front of a humble hovel of a house. And they get off and walk across an unkept yard. And Zebra steps upon an unkept porch, probably rotted away, and knocks on a door that hangs on one hinge. And from the inside comes a weak, sickly voice. Come in. And Zebra pushes that door as it drags open the floor, open enough to get into the door. And on the inside, a dark, unlighted, Smelly room, no furniture, a bed that was not clean, and on the bed the wasted form of this paralytic who had never played baseball with the other boys, who was never able to run and romp in the community, and now is afflicted with arthritis and other complications uh, to the point of death. He lay there, a miserable looking sight, no doubt. Miserable looking sight. And he stepped over to the bed and looked down at the face of that paralytic and said, uh, My name is Zeba, and I'm servant of His Majesty King David of Israel. Are you Mephibosheth? And he looked up at his face and said, Yes, sir, I'm Mephibosheth. Well, I've been sent to fetch you to King David. He couldn't believe his ears. Me? Me? To King David? You're mistaken, sir, not me. I will not be able to march in his army. I'll not be able to serve his tables. Look at my hands. Look at my legs. You're not looking for me, sir. Oh, yes. Your name is said? Yes. yes, sir. My name is Mephibosheth. I'm looking for you. He couldn't believe his ears. And that driver, I imagine, came inside and picked that man up like a mother would pick up a baby in his arms. Carried him out of that hovel of a house in Lodi Bar and put him down in the chariot. And the driver stepped on, on board and picked up the reins. And Zeba stepped on board and they started to turn that chariot around and start toward waiting King David. I preached this sermon here at Tabernacle about 25 years ago. After all, I've been here quite a while, you know. And I got to this point and I bogged down. I couldn't move that chariot. I tried to move that chariot, but the people shouted and I shouted for about five or ten minutes. I said, I must finish the sermon. I tried to move it the second time, couldn't move it. Shouted another time, five or ten minutes. I said, I must close this message. I tried to move it the third time, and the same thing happened. I gave it up, brother, we shouted the rest of the hour. Grace doing what nothing else can do. And they picked that man up and bore him outside, put him in the chariot, turned around and went back to King David's palace. And David has waited. He's ready. And they have a pallet right before it's sown. And they lay that man upon that pallet. The servants stand back at attention. And the first man to speak in that company was the king. And he stepped over to Mephibosheth and called him by his name. And said, Mephibosheth, just called him by his name. You read that uh, for yourself. It's in verse number 6. And he said, Mephibosheth, 
And that poor man looked up into David's face and said, Behold thy servant. Whatever it may be worth to you, I'm your servant. I'm a nobody. But he knew his name. And I imagine when David called his name, it was like a mother's lullaby. She rocks a fevered baby at the midnight. When he called his name, it was like a mother receiving a letter from a boy in the Persian Gulf a few days ago. It was like the calm after the storm. And I imagine the fellow says, said to himself, he knows me. He knows me. And I'd like to say to you, God knows every miserable sinner in Greenville tonight. Every sinner. God knows all sinners. Not one has ever escaped God's eye. He knows your name. He knows where you live. He knows who your wife is. He knows who your children are. He knows where I can find you. And he'll come where you are. And you can't hide from God. You can't hide from God. He knows me. He knows me. And he does know you. And he knows me. And I'm glad that he knows me. And one day, he's going to call me by my name. I've never heard majesty call my name. But one day, he, the Son of God, very God, shall call my name. And when he does, I expect I'm going to shout like Mephibosheth shouted. Mephibosheth said King David. And then I imagine David put his hand on his head and touched his head and said, uh, Fear not. Don't be afraid. That's verse number seven. Fear not. I'm not going to imprison you. Don't you know Mephibosheth knew who David was? And knew how his, how his uh, uh, grandfather Saul hated David and tried to kill him. And I imagine the first thought Mephibosheth had was, he's going to take revenge on me. And he'll put me to death. I'll go to jail the rest of my life. But when David said, fair not, he said, I'm not going to prison you. I'm not going to hurt you. But I brought you here to show the kindness of God to you for Jonathan's sake, for Jesus' sake. And that's the only plea I have. My name is Jesus, and God loves me for Jesus' sake, and God saved me for Jesus' sake. And it was after God, uh, uh, David spoke to Mephibosheth, he called him by name and then said, Fear not, that David then said, What is thy servant that thou should... I'm sorry, Mephibosheth then said, What is thy servant that thou wouldst look upon such a dead dog? Dead dog. I preached this sermon one time, and a nice, sophisticated leader said, I want that preacher to know... I'm no dog. Well, she thinks rather too highly of herself. When I look at myself and compare what I am with the grace of God, I want to say what Mephibah said, why would God be mindful of such a dead dog as I am? My dear soul, if we are anything, we are by grace. By grace. Totally by grace. Not of works. Not of work. Not of price. But by grace we are what we are. What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? Then David stepped back to the throne and he said to one of his servants, he said, I want you to fix the east room tonight. We have a guest. And I guess that servant might have looked at my fellow said, I'm reading just a bit between the lines here. But uh, he might have looked at, I do, I'm sure they had a guest room in that palace. But uh, he's going to live in my house, it says, further down, as one of the king's sons, so it's not altogether between the lines. 
But I imagine that servant said to himself, he can't sleep where kings and queens rest themselves. Well, we'll put him back in the servants' quarters. Uh, we'll change the Bible from mansions to a room, and we'll put him back in a room and take care of him in a room. He's, they were liberal preachers, no doubt, like some in our day, like the NIV crowd, like the NESV crowd. They changed the Bible from mansions to a word, I mean, to a room. So we'll put him back in the room and not bother King David. But the next look at David gets the answer. Hey, you know that servant picks the East Room? And that not a dead dog slept where a king sleeps. And that was the day when I was an alien from the Commonwealth of Israel. But I'm not an alien any longer. I'm a fellow citizen with the saints of God. And I'm going to pillow my hat in the king's house. In the king's mansion. One day. And then David said, another servant, come over here. And that servant, David said to him, you picked a plate at my table. This man's going to eat at my table as one of my sons. You picked a plate at my table. And I guess that servant might have thought like the other one. Now, David, you can't afford to do that. What do you think about your public image? You're a king. This man is a nobody. And besides that, he's sick. He's going to die in a few days. Oh, aren't you glad God lived you out before you died? He's going to die. You can't bring him into your table. Your family will be embarrassed and your company will be embarrassed. He can't handle a knife or fork. He's a miserable wretch of a living creature. We'll feed him in the service quarters. But another glance got the answer and they fixed a plate at the king's table. And that dead dog sat down at the king's table. You know, my old crooked feet and my old crooked hands and my old deformed body doesn't look too badly when the tablecloth of grace covers my legs. And when the tablecloth of grace covers my hands. And when the tablecloth of grace covers my whole body. I don't look so bad at all, you see. Sin abounds grace. There's much more abound. Abounding grace. Abounding grace. Covers my hands and my legs and my person. I don't look bad at all when grace is abounding grace. And then uh, David, David said to Ziba, Tomorrow you go down to the recorder's court and tell the recorder you want a title deed to every foot of ground the King Saul ever had. And you tell the recorder, this is all to be deeded to Mephibosheth. And when you get that done, you take your 15 sons and 20 servants and go out and till that land and plant it. And when the harvest time comes, you reap the increase, but don't put it in your barns, put it in the barns of Mephibosheth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, Mephibosheth is lying there on that pallet listening to all of that. Wonder how he's thinking. Wonder what he's thinking. Now, imagine I'm there and I'll watch him and I'll look at him as David makes those profound announcements. One, two, three. And Mephibosheth is, is dumbfounded. Why would he do that for me? Why would David do that for me? He owes me nothing. I'm the guilty sinner. And why does he do that for me? And if I were there, I'd like to slip up to David and get close to him and to Mephibosheth and get close to his ear. And I'd say, Mephibosheth, what did you do? Because King David do so much for you. 
And he'd look up, and his eyes would be tear-stained, and his tears were running down his cheeks and dropping off his chin. And he'd say to me, Preacher, in my hand no price do I bring. Except to thy cross I claim. And I stand and sing Amazing Grace. And I stand and preach about my set. And as I stand and preach about my set, I say to my great advocate, his name is Jesus, in my hand no price do I bear, but simply to thy cross I claim. I say he paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And he did wash it white as snow indeed. You don't pay for grace, but grace is freely bestowed upon every trusted sinner. Praise God for grace. God bless you. God bless you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's the grace of God. The best I can say it, and the best I can tell it. You say, preacher, you have a lot of noise around here. My soul, you see nothing yet. You wait till we get to heaven. to bring in a talent. You don't have to bring in the money. You don't have to twist my arm. God puts you in. And I say amen, amen. I'm glad you're in. Give God the glory. Well, that's the grace of God. May we stand together, please. Our Father, we thank you for grace. I thank you for these that rejoice in that their names are written down. And certainly we've tried to teach all of our people it's not a price, nor worth, nor merit, but it's all of grace. And I've tried to say it again tonight. And not one of us rejoice because of what we are, of the price we paid, but we rejoice in that he paid it all. And that he invites whosoever will, like the poor woman in Greensboro, like many of these in this building that I've had the privilege of baptizing down through the years, who stayed from a miserable life of sin. Thank God for the salvation of every one of them. And Lord, not able to, to shake the city of Greenville. We're not able to do it. But God is able to shake this city. And invite some other sinners. And Lord, if you'll get some other sinners in the tabernacle, we'll move over and let them have our seat. We'll call them brother. We'll say, sister, we're glad to have you. And we'll fellowship with them. If you'll get them saved, we'll love them and fellowship with them and try to train them to know that everything we are, we are by the grace of God. Now, I'll... We're standing heads about. There may be somebody who'd love to get saved tonight. We'll just sing a standard or two. I ran a little bit over my time. 
but I'll just say a standard, just two standards, and that's all. If you're in this building, you want these brethren to pray for you. You won't find a better time. Just come on forward, and we'll pray for you. Get you saved. God's able to save you. May we sing quiet. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Pulpit. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We pray that through the challenging preaching of the Word of God today, that you will be encouraged to stay faithful in preaching the Word and hearing the Word. Lester Roloff many years ago said, the world's greatest need is preaching preachers. Let's pray that in this day and this hour, we will stay faithful to the preaching of Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening to The Baptist Pulpit.